Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right. Good morning, church. It's good to be back together. Seen this week of probably any other week we've been out here, everybody wanted to gather in the sun because it's a little cool this morning. I know we don't get a lot of hot weather here, but this is kind of a sign of fall, which is my favorite season here. And so good news is fall is right around the corner, but I still want to embrace the sunshine and and the heat a little bit uh, longer. I actually got uh, one of you lended us a nice AC unit, so we want to be able to use that. We haven't even turned it on yet, so hopefully we get some more hot weather so that we can use that. Uh, This week, we are uh, starting back in our series in the book of Philippians, uh, where Carrie read from just a few minutes ago, as we continue looking at our priorities, um, specifically in this cultural moment where we have found ourselves. And so um, everything that we see happening in 2020 in our nation, and then even in our city, uh, between the pandemic and the race conversations and the protest and the rights, just all of that and to ask ourselves, what are we living for? What am I living for? And then what are we collectively as the people of God living for in this cultural moment where we have found ourselves? Uh, this week, the Apostle Paul is going to come in and build upon what he started last week, and he's going to exhort us to live as lights in the world. So I want you to think about that idea of living as a light in the world as we look at these verses and he's going to challenge us to demonstrate the same faith and obedience in our everyday lives that Christ portrayed in his life. If we look at Christ as our model and how it was that he lived his life, will we ever attain to that on this side of heaven? No, but that doesn't mean that he should be our model and that we should not attempt to live after Jesus. And he's going to build upon this appeal to us to live in unity. So we've really been focused on this idea of unity because there's been a lot of things in 2020 that could cause disunity in, in the church broadly, but then even our churches as well. And then don't forget, I say this a lot, we're coming into a political season. And so there's a lot more that could cause disunity in the church. And Paul's going to say, unify, and he's going to appeal for us to live a life that will lead to salvation of others. And so what he's going to kind of show us is that the world around you is actually watching you. And the world around us is actually watching us and how it is that we live this life and how it is that we are responding as people of faith to this cultural moment where we have found ourselves. And so the main point of the sermon this morning is going to be this idea of working out your salvation by allowing God to work in us. And we're going to unpack that a little bit um, and hopefully there'll be some some clarity and understanding. This is a, a passage that gets misused a lot and there can be a lot of um, confusing uh, parts of these verses. And he's going to come in and say, demonstrate the genuineness of your faith to the world around us by being light in a dark place. I don't know about you, but uh, many people look at Portland as a dark place. They look at the stat of us being the least religious and most atheistic city in the country and say, that is a dark city. The reality is our whole nation, those who are from God and far from God, that we are in dark places. And that we are in a spiritual battle. I mean, I look around right now and you think, man, this is beautiful. The sun is shining over here and some shade over here and the green, like... This isn't a a, a dark place, but spiritually a very dark place. And how it is that we are called out and that we are are called by God into a place to be lights in a dark world. I think last night I went to my kid's bedroom. They have these little stars. You've probably had them whenever you had kids all over the ceiling. And so I turned off the light because we usually do family devotionals at night. And it had been a long day and we just were like, we did the mom and dad thing. So not tonight. Okay, you're going to bed. We're going to pray real quick. And I said, but I turned off the light. I said, but tomorrow, here's a preview and hopefully... Uh, I see Liam and Oliver. I don't know where Elliot is. Hopefully you guys are listening, but I turn off the lights. So see those stars? 
That's just kind of what we're talking about tomorrow, that we found ourselves in this place that's spiritually dark, but we are sent as lights, so it's like these stars, to be representatives of Jesus in that place. And so go ahead and open your Bibles or turn on your app and swipe to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Once again, it's Philippians 2, verse 12. We'll hopefully work our way through verse 18. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the Word. God, we thank you again for this morning where we can gather together as your people. God, it's always a beautiful sight to see us come together and to, um, one, just fellowship. I just love watching everyone just chatting with each other this morning and just looking forward to getting to see each other aside from seeing each other on, on Facebook or something like that. And God, that we can come together and hear your word, which has already been proclaimed, as Carrie reminded us, God, that, that your word has already been read over us. And we got to worship in song. God, thank you for the gifts and ability that Jacob has and just to lead us and, and singing praise and glory to you. And God, now we ask during this time that your word would not return void. God, that it is alive and well and that it would speak to us. And God, that we would leave here as a result worshiping you even more. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Philippians 2, verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we'll stop there. So Paul begins this section with the word therefore. And you've probably heard it said many times. And the word therefore is there. You ask us, what is the word therefore, therefore? And what follows then is this logical outworking of what he said last week, back in verses 5 through 11, which is why we reread that at the beginning this morning, which was this basic idea that we looked at, to have united humility. What does it look like to put others' good in front of our own good, which is not easy as we recognize, but how is it that people of God that we do that? So look back at our key verses from last week. I don't usually give you homework assignments, but you all had a homework assignment this week. We're not going to take turns listening if you actually follow through, but verses 3 and 4 were our homework assignment where it said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. For me personally, so there's another homework assignment. I'm not printing that out, like putting it on the mirror in my house and on my, my rear view mirror, my, well, not rear view mirror, but on my dashboard or somewhere in my car, where I can see this all the time. Because if I looked at these verses before I interacted with others, even some of you over coffee or on a walk or at the park or whatever it happened to be, before I post on social media, I think I would operate in a very different manner and light. And so he's going to take those verses, and now Paul's going to come in, and he's going to show us the logical outworking of how we're actually to go about living out that relationship with others, both inside the church and outside the church. Because as we recognize um, it's really, really hard. I mean, I can hear all of us saying, Paul, have you ever lived with people? Like, you don't know my roommate. You don't know my friend. You don't know my spouse. Like, have you ever interacted with them? You would not be telling me this. And Paul's going to say, no, I'm going to show you how it is that you actually work this out logically. And we see here, the Philippians are called to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That's where we have to be careful. And that's where we get tricky. This might sound like a salvation by works instead of by grace. Now, if you've been around Sojourn for any amount of time, if you've been around Eastbridge for any amount of time, you would know that we do not believe that salvation is by works. And so please don't leave today. If for some reason I miscommunicate that, do not leave here today uh, thinking that. But Paul does say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the, there's some key words that we must look at. We always have to look at the context of, of the verse in the scripture. And, and that where it says it's not salvation by works. It doesn't say work for your salvation. I think we, we hear work out your salvation and we automatically a lot of times will interpret that or some groups have interpreted that and ran with this idea of salvation by works. 
by saying, work for your salvation. You must do these things and pull up your bootstraps and read scripture this many time in the week and pray this many times and fast. And you're working for your salvation. That's not what it says. Remember, I think it was a week, two weeks ago, maybe, when Paul's kind of proclaiming these things are already true in Christ. So it's like salvation's already been provided. It's already been given to you. But now, now go live as if it were true because it's true. He's saying it's to work out your own salvation. Now, nowhere in the New Testament is the human responsibility and salvation more succinctly stated. And so we, we do see this part here. And so if you look at the second part of verse 12 and, the, and then verse 13, they're really um, complementary as they work together. The first half does speak. There is this human responsibility that we, are, we see here. And the second part, second part speaks to God's sovereignty over that. And so the word he uses for work out, it, it's in the original language. It implies this idea of bringing something to completion. So you've, you've all probably interacted with something where like something started, but then it hadn't actually completed. This is a really bad um, comparison to this verse, but I thought of it this week, is we just bought a house. And so when someone asks me now, are you a renter in Portland? There's a lot of renters. Like, no, we're a homeowner. So we kind of crossed this threshold. But I don't actually own the home. I owe the bank a lot of money. And so it's like, yes, I'm a homeowner. I could say I am a homeowner, but it, the, the work of actually owning that home has not come to completion yet because I owe a lot of money on that. And so, yes, I'm a homeowner. So once again, it's not a one-for-one comparison, but it's kind of that idea that salvation is yours. It's been provided in Jesus. But now go live as if it were true. In other words, live as one who's been changed by the blood of Jesus. Paul is basically saying, don't stop halfway. Don't just settle for get out of hell free card. I think uh, growing up in church as a kid, that was kind of my, my thing. Like, well, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm not, I'm, I got to get out of hell free card. You know, but I wasn't actually living out the salvation that had been given to me. And so Paul's saying, don't go halfway. Like, live this out fully. You should not be satisfied with anything less than the total benefits of the gospel and the implications for that in your life. And so while it is true that salvation happens at a moment of giving our lives over to Jesus, there's this other idea, this big theological work called sanctification. And the sanctification is a lifelong process that will never fully be achieved fully this side of heaven. And, and so I think a lot of times we mistakenly, well, I, there's a salvation that happens at this, this one moment, but this idea of the sanctification is the lifelong process. Um, Tim Keller, he's quoted for saying that um, Christian, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A through Zs of Christianity. And so it's this idea of sanctification, that, that the this, this salvation is not only the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the sanctification process, the A through Zs. And so it's going to be an ongoing process throughout your entire walk. And you might say, well, when do I graduate from sanctification? You don't until you, until you go to heaven. So on this side of heaven, you're going to continue to progress in that faith. And so don't just settle for the status quo of accepting and following Jesus, but actually progress in your faith. Our brother James told us that when we looked at this idea of having a living faith. And what does it actually look like to live as a person of Jesus? We see in these verses that God is at work in both you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's, that's also really good news, that God is doing this for his, his good pleasure. Because if you're like me, there's times when you find yourself drifting away. There's times when we, we find ourselves in sin, or maybe we're caught in a sin, or we're caught in a rut, or we just go through what we, we call in the Christian world a dry period, a dry season. You just don't feel like God's speaking to you. And if, if that's me in that moment, if you're anything like me, you kind of want God at a, a, a distance. And you kind of say, you know what, I don't really want to be here. And maybe like, I mean, obviously I have to continue to go through the motions, so maybe some of you do that as well. Um, but you, you kind of say, God, I don't really want you here. But the good news is that God is doing it for his good pleasure. It's not up to you. Because if it were up to us, we would not seek God on our own. And that's what he's telling us in these verses. And here's what Paul is reminding us of in these opening verses. Two main points. This is a spot, if you, if you do take notes, then maybe take notes or jot these things down. But the first is that salvation is of God. And there's a couple sub points underneath that. 
It is God who works in us the desire to be saved. So if you are a Christian this morning, the good news is that God worked that desire in you. You never worked it in yourself. And so you might, you might have someone in your life who's not a Christian and you desperately want them to become a Christian. Pray that God will work that desire in them. They don't desire to be a Christian any more than you desire to be a Christian, but God worked that desire in you to follow him. It's true, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And it's also true that we could not even begin to seek him unless he had already found us. And so the desire for salvation of God is kindled not by a human will or human emotion, but by God himself. And so the beginning of salvation starts in Jesus. The continuance of that process, there's a second sub-point, is dependent upon God. Without God working in you, there is no progress in goodness. Without help from the Holy Spirit, no sin can be conquered and no virtue achieved. And so if there's an area of your life that you're struggling giving over or you're just, you're just not sure, pray that God would continue to work in you. So it's, it's this, this weird human responsibility and God's sovereignty that work together as we progress in our faith. And the third sub-point sub is the end of the process of salvation is also with God. An end in which we are His and He is ours. And so when we never forget that the, the beginning of salvation starts with God, the, the middle continuing part of salvation starts with God, and the ending of salvation is in God. Now there's a second point to these first two verses. There's this other side of this whole thing. It's the human responsibility when it comes to salvation, which is why Paul says, work out your own salvation. The fact is that any gift or any benefit has to be received. So here's an example. Let's just say that someone in here gets COVID-19, hopefully not from this gathering. But let's just say you come down with COVID-19 and it's really, really bad. Uh, like it looks like you're going to be maybe one of those who would die from COVID-19. But let's just say we're fast forward and, and hopefully we're all praying that there's some kind of medicine or cure that comes out. And the doctor comes to you and says, here's the bottle. Now, this is the medicine. I know it's a lot. I know it tastes really, really bad. But you have to drink this whole thing and you're good to go. You'll have no remaining symptoms. You'll be cured like that. And you think, well, we'd be an idiot not to drink that bottle if I'm the one who has COVID-19. But there's still this possibility that that patient may stubbornly refuse to take that medicine. If they're like me, they're like, I don't like medicine. I don't want to take it. I just want to get better naturally. And they may say, no, I don't want that. And I reject that. And so they refuse all persuasion to take it. Paul is saying it's similar with salvation. The offer of God is there. God has made a way of salvation for all people. And without it, there can be no such thing as salvation. But no one can receive salvation without answering the appeal that God is making and taking what he offers. Now, Christians have long debated what the idea of quenching of the Holy Spirit is. The quenching of the Holy Spirit is when God reveals himself to someone. In other words, they believe Jesus is who he says he is, but they still knowingly reject him. The demons say they believe in Jesus. In other words, they believe Jesus is who he says he is, but they reject him. And so that's a scary ground to be on when you go, you know, no, no, I do believe Jesus is the Son of God. I do believe that Jesus came and lived this life and died this death and rose again, but I'm still willingly going to reject him. And so may that not be said of any of us, and we pray that none of those people that we're praying for, that they would recognize and that God would stir this desire in them, the longing for him. Because we all know, hopefully, we live in Portland, come on, we all know people who don't know Jesus, who we would love to see them come and embrace him. And we know this as well. I always like to plug this. They're probably not going to come and embrace him at our, our, our gathering, whether we're in a stamp building or a smile station or a park like this. But you are sent as lights into those relationships, whether it's your neighbors or your coworkers or your friends that you do hobbies, whatever it is, you are sent as lights and be praying that God would stir this longing for him because your own longing, even if you grew up in church and you gave your life over to Jesus at four years old like Andrea did, it wasn't her desire. God had this desire in her for that. So be praying that for these people. 
And so salvation, we can have no salvation without God, but what God offers, we must take. So in other words, God does not withhold salvation from people, it's available to all, but we are responsible for depriving ourselves from it. And it is God who has to give us enabling grace to receive and accept his grace in our lives. And so while verse 12, if you just read it quickly, it may suggest a salvation by works, it's clear that Paul rejects any such teaching. If you look at all of Paul's letters and take that into context, or even if you read chapter 3, which we're going to get into next week, he's going to show us that it's not a salvation by works message. But it is this idea of progressively coming to experience all of the blessings that are yours in Jesus. And then as verse 13 demonstrates that these works are a result of God's working within his people, both for his will and for his good pleasure. D.A. Carson uh, talks about this idea of the sovereign responsibility tension, uh, the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility tension. He says, the sovereignty responsibility tension is not a problem to be solved. So that's one point we should take away. It's not a problem to be solved. We don't have to sit here and spend the next 12 hours trying to figure this out. Rather, it is a framework to be explored, to recognize this is already a major advance, for it rejects those easy solutions which impose alien philosophical constructions upon the biblical data or which dismiss those elements of the biblical data not conducive to the investigator's system. To explore this tension is to explore the nature of God and his ways with men. So know this, church. The letter to the church of Philippi, the letter that we're reading, and so to the church of Portland and to us, is filled with assurance that when God begins his work of salvation, he brings it to completion. Just look back at verse 6. And so that is the good news. As God is working that, that he is bringing it to completion. There is a genuine personal responsibility as we looked at to work out your salvation, but even that is a call that is grounded in God himself working in you. And so why do we, why, why does, why do we have to do this? It's God's plan, it's God's pleasure, it's for his goodness. And so there is this mystery. We're gonna recognize that. There is this mystery of this human responsibility and God's divinity, how those two work together. But here's what we know. Both are indeed true, even if we don't fully understand them, and both truths are clearly stated here. And we see this key word as you go from verse 12 to verse 13, four. It's the word that's connecting them. And this is telling us that God's ongoing gracious work must not lead to laziness. So as we think about God working in us, I think part of that is what Paul is conveying here to us, is because this is yours in Christ Jesus, this doesn't give you a chance just to sit back now and say, well, okay, I got saved, I'm good to go. Now I'm going to go live however the heck I want. I'm going to live this reckless life. This is God who does it anyway, right? You ever heard someone with that mentality? I think typically around college. (laughs) That's when all my my church friends were suddenly like, well, I'm going to go party because, I mean, I got this, right? You know, I was confirmed at this age. I I, I received these things. I was sprinkled as a baby or whatever. And it's going like, no, Paul's saying, this doesn't give you a a chance to not be lazy or indifferent or passive, but to continue to stand in awe of God the God who called you out of your mess and your brokenness and your sin and who offered you salvation. And so we are lights in a dark world by allowing our actions to be defined by the gospel. Continue by looking at verse 14. Paul's going to give us some really practical instructions. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I think we need to pause on that one and just go back to my house and see what it looks like day in and day out. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so he's going to continue this theme for us of working out your salvation. And he says the Philippians here, he says, you should shine as lights amid a crooked and twisted generation. 
And his, his word choice, we might hear that and say, what, what does that mean? I mean, I'm getting texts from people on the other side of the country who are like, man, you're living in a twisted and crooked generation in your city and you know, questioning all these things. But he's actually recalling the wilderness generation of Israel. If you know much about Israel, if you, you've studied the Old Testament, their spiritual progress continued to be thrown off by grumbling and disputing. They continued to find themselves in that place and then God would deliver them and then they would get back and they, all of a sudden they found themselves back in grumbling and disputing. And so, of course, grumbling and disputing are wrong. And that's reason for enough for Paul to command the Philippians to forsake such actions and attitudes. But what specific reason does Paul give in, in verse 15 for not grumbling and disputing? You think about a means of complaint or of displeasure. It's usually expressed in a, a church within murmuring or secret talk. Or maybe there's whisperings about someone in the church. Maybe it's about the leaders of the church. It's the kind of grumbling of action that leads to, it kind of comes under the guise like, hey, I've got some concerns here. And usually it leads to something instead of harmony and goodwill. And all of a sudden you, you see these conflicts are in contradictory to the heart of the gospel. Now, I can't, I can't speak for every single person here. I can't speak for both churches. And I can speak for my church and for those connected to Sojourn. Like Sojourn's dealt with that. There's no reason to hide it. We've dealt with that. We've had murmuring. We've had whispering. We've had grumbling. We've had complaining. And I'm like, man, Paul would have taken this and like, smacked it in front of us and said, guys, what are you doing? This is not from God. This is not from me. And Paul borrows language from Deuteronomy 32.5 when he calls the Philippians. He says, to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so the absence of complaining and arguing is a testifying mark, a testimony of those who have put their faith in the Lord and his plans. And so we see that God takes grumbling and complaining quite seriously. I think for us, we don't think a whole lot about it. I think, well, I'll just kind of do this in the back door. We'll have some secret meetings. We'll do these things. Paul says, no, like God takes this very, very seriously because you're not only talking about those people and that leader. You're talking about his church, the bride of Christ, which, yeah, all of our churches are imperfect, but you're talking about his church and he takes that very, very seriously. I mean, people in the Old Testament were carrying the tabernacle and they, if they, they tried to not let it drop on a the day they weren't supposed to touch it, they, they got killed immediately. So like, this is a very serious offense. And we just kind of take it off like, ah, oh, you know, I didn't like that, so I'm going to complain against it. Like, this is the bride of Christ that we're talking about, okay? And when Paul writes the Philippians are to shine as lights in the world, he's tapping into this rich biblical language. God promised in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 that one day he would give a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Now, the New Testament clearly saw this as the fulfillment of Jesus coming. In fact, Jesus and John, uh, in the book of John, insisted that he is the light of the world. And he came into the world as a light so that whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness. But Jesus also told his disciples that, and, and us by extension that we are to be lights of the world. And our world desperately needs light. It's always needed light, but especially right now. It wasn't by mistake. God had us all born when we were born. We all live here in 2020. Our world desperately needs this light. Our world desperately needs the message of Jesus. I think sometimes what I watch happening right now in the middle of our culture, I'm sure it's broadly of, uh, of the United States, is that the church, and it's really hard, pray for wisdom for all of us, please pray for wisdom for me, is that sometimes our light and what we have to offer doesn't look any different than what the world has to offer. And so are we offering something that actually looks like light? Or are we offering something that the world can find elsewhere? I think sometimes that is the disconnect and why people go, you know, I don't, I don't have any desire to be part of this because what you're offering looks exactly the same. You maybe repackage it a little bit differently and you might use a little different language on it, but it looks exactly the same. 
And as we are sent as lights, this is why we as a church care about the Great Commission. This is why our, our three values at Sojourn are gospel, because the gospel informs everything that we do. Family, because we want to live as family. Although, you know, think about family, we're not perfect. We want to live as family to one another and live out to one another. But then we say mission. And so we care so much about the Great Commission, both locally and globally, because that we are sent as lights to the world. Collectively, right now, we have been sent to the city of Portland. So I don't care if you were born here. I don't care if you moved here yesterday. I don't care if you came here to be part of a church plant or if you came here for a job. If you are a person of faith and you're following Jesus, you were sent here as a light for a purpose. Okay? And how are you living that purpose out? One of the long-term goals of our church is to be a sending church. We want to be a multiplying church. We have 95, 20-minute walkable communities all over our city, and we want to help see groups raised up in those that can be formed into gospel communities, that can form eventually into churches, and that we can multiply all throughout this place. We want to eventually have people we can raise up and help send out to other parts, maybe down to California or up to Washington or over to Idaho. We want to send people overseas. And so our prayer is that some of you even would be raised up and sent out to these other areas of Portland, but also overseas in strategic cities in our own nation and strategic cities all over the world. This is why we partner with groups like the IMB and send network and others. This is why we have families like the McCoys. If you guys didn't check our social media, I think it was last week, I posted a video from Mike McCoy. And we, we want to partner with these people because we believe that we are sent as lights all over the world. They're sent, he's from here and he's sent over to London. And we want to partner with them to be a light in that place. And Paul says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. And so we see the Philippians' obedience to the word of life is not only a matter of private concern. The Apostle Paul is saying, I am a fellow sharer in this, this life, in this struggle, in this gospel. And Paul's own labor would be in vain if they failed to hold fast until the day of Christ. And holding fast here, he's saying, believe God's word and follow it. If you want to say, well, how do you progress in your faith? Part of that is believing God's word and actually following it. The world will break us down and cause us to question everything that we know about faith, everything that we know about Christianity, everything that we know to be true in the Word of God. Now, don't mishear me. Are there areas that we need to deconstruct things? Absolutely. Are there areas that we've kind of imposed as man on faith in the church? Yes. Those things we need to reevaluate. We need to take a step back. I think COVID's allowed us to do that some and say, maybe we need to get rid of this and maybe we need to pivot over here. But I'm talking about the, the Word of God. Now, when you hear that, I know that some of you are probably also going, and the world's going to cause this, you're going to question the inerrancy of Scripture. I know that some of you wrestle through that to believe that the Word of God is actually the Word of God. And what does that cause you to do? That means you actually struggle to study the Word of God, or you don't even attempt to study the Word of God because you don't believe the Word of God is fully the Word of God. Now, here's my advice. Pastorally, here's my advice to you. If that is you, go learn Greek. Go learn Hebrew. Go learn the original language of the original manuscript and come and tell us what is wrong and what we got wrong. Are there areas that we probably interpret things wrong? Probably. You know, if you say, you know what, Matt, you preach in the ESV, and I don't like the ESV. Don't use the ESV. Matt, I like the NIV. Get the NIV. I don't like the NIV. I like the message. It's not really a translation, but use the message, whatever you need to do. But go learn Greek. Go learn Hebrew. Do your homework. In 2020, it's, there's no easier time to do these things. I know Jacob knows a lot of these things, so he'll probably help you. No, he won't. <laughs> and come and tell us what we got wrong. Do that. But that part of the problem and why some of you live by your word instead of God's word is because the word's kind of, the world's broken you down. You're like, I don't really believe that this, that this is true. Then why are you following it at all? If you don't believe it's true, this is the book that's about Jesus. Why, why, why believe any of it? Just, just throw it out. Why even follow him? This is not working out your salvation to question all of it and go, you know, I just, I don't believe this. 
If you wonder why are you progressing your faith, well, part of it is you got to pick up the Word of God and actually read it. Now, this isn't a, a hammer down, and once again, this isn't a pull up your bootstraps. God's the one working in you, but we are called to do our part, and I think our part is actually following Him. The world will try to get us to loosen our grip on the gospel in a number of ways. But what Paul is doing here, okay? So I, I kind of get out of this one. So don't come blame Matt. What Paul is doing here, he is pleading with us to hold fast to the Word of God and to the things of God. Don't give up on these things. Don't let go of these things. And Paul comes in and says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So Paul compares himself to a drink offering. Now this might seem kind of strange to us. What do you, you, know, what do you mean by a drink offering? This would have been very familiar to the Philippian context. Familiar in both the Old Testament and the Greco-Roman culture involved pouring out wine either onto the ground or as here on the altar along with an animal or grain sacrifice. And so it's, it's this vivid illustration. This isn't why I brought this bottle up here, but you know, it's this vivid illustration of just being poured out. You know, and someone said, well, you're, you're, he's just wasting, but he's pour, being, pouring out his life for God's service. You know, Paul's already told us that he sees death as worship, as a sacrifice, and as a sign fully consecrated to the life of Jesus. And he says the Philippians, too, are to be a sacrificial offering. They're to emulate Paul's joyful service to God. And he's calling to us to do that as well. Would your life be described as, as a drink offering? Are you pouring out your life for the sake of others? This is where he builds upon last week. Once again, you have been sent as a light to the city of Portland. And would people describe your life as you're pouring your life out for others? Or is it all about you? Is it all about how you can get more stuff and how you make your life more comfortable? Or are you living your life as a drink as, as a, a sacrificial offering that you're pouring out for others. And then Paul comes in 18 to conclude this section. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so what does this look like? This looks like pouring out ourselves in community. Now, do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? I mean, he wrote, likewise. So he's saying, hey, everyone, listen up. Likewise, you should all be glad and rejoice with me. Paul was in prison writing this letter. He's not, he's not sitting on some comfy couch in an Airbnb watching Netflix like, hey, you guys should be joyful. You know, I'm sitting by the pool. Like he's in prison here, yet he is rejoiceful. Now, maybe you're like me. I try to be transparent. Sometimes I'm accused of not being transparent, but I try to be transparent when I'm delivering a message. If you're like me, you may find yourself, you're just really tired right now. I'm, I'm there. So if you're there, then I'm with you. You might say, I'm just worn out from laboring for the gospel. And I just, I just don't ever see the progress that I want to see. And 2020 has just whacked me upside the head. I'm just, I'm just, you feel in that exhaustion. May we find encouragement. May you find along with me encouragement from the Apostle Paul today. The Apostle Paul who labored to the point of imprisonment and who said it would be joyful for himself to be poured out. And may we also find ourselves challenged by Paul's testimony. So when you think about that person that you're tempted to grumble and complain about, what does it look like to be sent as a light to that person? When that roommate you can no longer stand, what does it look like to put their needs in front of your own needs? That friend who you question their loyalty and trust, what does it look like to be loyal to them anyway? In the midst of this cultural moment, we have found ourselves, may you find joy. I, think, I keep thinking about the James. I know I keep referencing, but the, the two seem to go so well together. In James chapter one, he talks about finding joy in the middle of all this chaos. Now, why does this all matter? Because our faithfulness to God and with one another in community deeply impacts our effectiveness for living on mission in the world. 
That's why it matters. It matters for you to actually be a light in how, how you actually live that out. Why does it matter that we work out our salvation? Why does it matter that we live and pour ourselves out for community? Because God's heart is for community. God's heart is for the world. And for whatever reason, He has chosen us. You know, His original group, the followers, was a group of misfits. And if I may say that of us this morning, we're a group of misfits. And then He's chosen us, though, because His heart is for, in our case, the city of Portland. And He has chosen, for whatever reason, that He wants to use us as part of that, as His big church. When I think about living this out, I, I used this example not long ago. I've used it a number of times, so you're probably familiar with it. But in his autobiography, Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the Gospels and he seriously considered becoming a Christian. He believed that the, in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India, which was hereditary rank and profession or wealth. And so one Sunday, he decided, you know what? I'm going to attend a service. I'm going to attend a service at church. I'm going to talk to them about becoming a Christian. However, when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, an usher refused to give him a seat and instead suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and he never returned. And he wrote, If Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And so church, may that never be said of us. The world is looking for answers. I promise you they are. They may not tell you that. Although right now, I think a lot of people are. A lot of people are like, yeah, what, what are we supposed to do? You know? What, what is, let, me, let me try what you've got. And so if we're only offering the same exact thing they can get anywhere else, then we are not being light sent into the world. So what does it actually mean? What does it actually look like to offer them something that they can't find anywhere else? If you're part of church, you've heard that, that message. We claim that we have something that they can't get anywhere else. So what does that actually look like? May it not be something like a Gandhi coming into a church and saying, well, that's, that can, I can get that over here with what I've already got. And are we actually living this out and offering the people of the city of Portland something that looks like hope or something that's just packaged in what they can find elsewhere? And so I want us to conclude this morning, conclude chapter 2, by taking some time to reflect on the implications of verses 12 through 18 for your own life. What in this passage might lead you to praise God? What in this passage might lead you to repent of sin? Is there an area of your life that you haven't handed over to God or that you've been trying to live your own way? What in this passage might remind you to trust in His gracious promises? So if you're in Christ, today I encourage you during our response time when Jacob leads us in song that we would that we'd be reminded of these things. That we'd be reminded that yes, there is this human responsibility, but that God called you out to Himself and has given you salvation. And that should cause us to praise and worship and find joy even when we don't feel like it, even when we're not sure what is around the corner, even when we're in the midst of a really, really hard and challenging season of life. And if you're not in Christ, my encouragement to you is, is to pray that God would kindle that in you. I know people sometimes they go, man, I just wish I could. I just don't have that desire. I wish I did. And so pray that God would kindle that in you and know that that offer is made to you this morning as well. And so church, I'm going to pray for us. Um, I don't offer this every week at the park because it just looks different, but I'm going to be back there. So if anybody wants prayer for anything, I can do it at a social distance. I'll put my mask on, let me know, and then uh, we'll respond to worship and song. God, we thank you for this morning when we could gather again. God, it's beautiful to see your church come together. 
from different walks of life, from different neighborhoods, different streets, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. God, people of all different ages. And God, may we be reminded this morning that you have sent us to this city. You've sent us in this world as lights. God, not to come in as, as people who are judging. Not to people that we come in as giving people guilt trips or shame. But God, as your representatives, God, as ones who are offering light, ones who are offering hope in a world that desperately needs it. So God, may we leave this part today being reminded that we are your lights. God, that wherever we have found ourselves on whatever street, it wasn't by mistake and whatever job, it wasn't by mistake and roommates weren't mistakes, but God, that you have sent us there as representatives of you. And God, that we offer the free message of salvation to those people to come and take this journey of learning what it means to follow you. We thank you for these things, Jesus. We ask that you work in the lives of the people who we know who aren't Christ followers, that we love and that we desire to see and come and embrace this message as well. God, we recognize that we can do nothing in our own strength and power. And so God, we pray that you would kindle that desire in them. God, you would stir that desire in them. You'd build a spark that turns into a fire in them. And God, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would embrace you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.